0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Well, we're into the final night of Jesus' life when the trap closes. He's arrested, he's betrayed, he's disowned, and he's going to find himself all alone at the end of this night when the sun rises the next morning and headed to his death on a cross. We saw last week in Luke chapter 22 that the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. This was why all these people were coming to Jerusalem. Possibly a couple million extra pilgrims were in Jerusalem for the celebration of this Passover festival. And it says, The chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Remember, they'd gone toe-to-toe with Jesus a couple times this week already, had been totally humiliated. They knew he was wildly popular with the crowds, They knew they couldn't just arrest him in public because the people would not like that. But then Satan, God's enemy from days of old, entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Yes, Satan springs into action. Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. So here they're wondering what to do, and lo and behold, one of Jesus' guys on the inner circle comes right to them and makes an offer that they can't refuse. They were delighted and agreed to give him the money, 30 pieces of silver to be exact. And Judas agreed and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Yes, that's right. They needed to have no one around for them to arrest Jesus, for so they were going to do it without inciting a mob. And Judas, so Judas here, you know, modern film Has pretty sympathetic treatment of Judas. They've tried to cast him in a positive light. For example, this 1961 film portrayed Judas as this Jewish patriot, and he was like, man, Jesus, I'm trying, he's trying to get Jesus to overthrow the Romans, and he thinks, man, if I, if I sell him out, that he's going to unleash his true powers, and he's going to go all Incredible Hulk on him, and he's going to destroy the Romans and set up his kingdom. There's the 1971 musical Jesus Christ Superstar. (laughs) Here they had Judas as this guy who cared for the poor, very sympathetic character, trying to save the apostles. Is that really who Judas was? What about The Last Temptation of Christ, the 1988 film starring Willem Dafoe as Jesus Christ? (laughs) I'm serious. A young Willem Dafoe. Here... Judas did not want to turn Jesus in, but Jesus insisted that Judas hand him over, and so he reluctantly agreed. Is that really what Judas is? Is he a hero? Is he a sympathetic character? Is he misunderstood from, for generations? Well, if Judas is such a hero, why did he take the 30 pieces of silver? Why not just hand him over for free? Why is he want to get something out of it? Why was he stealing from the money box, according to John chapter 12? It was supposed to be used for the poor and the expenses of the disciples. Why did Jesus condemn him in Mark 14, 21, saying it would be better if that betrayer had never been born? Why did Jesus call him destined for destruction? Why did Jesus call him a devil in John six seventy? And why did he keep on lying like the hypocrite that he was right up to the very end? Now, Judas... Was not a hero, was not a sympathetic character. He's a guy who thought Jesus was going to set up a kingdom. He thought he was going to have a position of power in that kingdom. And he was realizing maybe he understood Jesus' mission better than any of his disciples. He realized Jesus was not going to do that. And so he decided while he could, he would get something out of it and move on with his life. And so he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Well, verses 7 through 20, that's the Last Supper that we covered last week. But Jesus gets to the end of instituting the the bread and the wine, and then he changes gears in verse 21. He says, But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine at the table. He just announces this betrayal right in the middle of dinner. Well, you'd expect at this point, you know, Jesus says the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. Yes, predicted in the Scriptures known from eternity past, but he says, woe to that man who betrays him. What sorrow upon him. It's not going to be a good day when judgment day comes, the one betraying the Son of Man. You'd think at this point that every disciple in the room would look down and go, Judas, you're going to betray Jesus. Come on, dude. But no, he was such a good faker that Instead, they began to question among themselves which of them it might be that would do this. They were like, surely not I, Lord. They were more likely to suspect themselves than Judas. That's how good of a a hypocrite this guy was. Well, John 13 gives us a little more detail at this point in the story. John tells us that that he, the author of the Gospel of John, was sitting next to Jesus at the table. It looks like Jesus had John on this side of him, and Judas on this side of him. Judas was actually probably in the place of highest honor at this meal. The best I can figure it out anyway. But it says John was sitting next to Judas, and Simon Peter motions to John. He's like, John, ask Jesus, who is he talking about? (laughs) So John's like, all right. He leans over and he goes, Lord, who is it? You can tell me, the <laughs> disciple who Jesus loved, come on. And Jesus, Jesus says, it's the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. <laughs> and then he goes, boop. Hey, Judas. <laughs> Want some bread? It's unleavened. And he dipped it, and he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. It looks like John's the only one that heard him. Well, Judas responds, and he said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Such a liar. And Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Those aren't my words. Those are yours. And then he tells him in John 13, 27, Why don't you hurry up and do what you're going to do? He was done with Judas being at the meal at this point. And he clears them out of there for some final teaching. In fact, John's got like four or five chapters of teaching at this point, the upper room discourse. The other Gospels don't don't contain most of that teaching. Although Luke does tell us that it was somewhere around this time that a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus, at the last night of his life, looking for a little sympathy, talking about his betrayal, they're more concerned again an argument they've had multiple times. Which one of us is the greatest? Who's going to get the place of honor in Jesus' kingdom? And Jesus said to them, Look, guys, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves friends of the people. Look, this is the, this is, you guys are thinking about leadership in all the wrong way. You're thinking of it like the world thinks about leadership, which is what you can get. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. Who's greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Of course, he says, it's, isn't it the one at the table? And yet, I'm among you as one who serves. Jesus says, tonight I'm going to show you and all generations to come the true meaning of greatness, the true meaning of leadership. This is servant leadership. He says, you guys are the ones that have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, look, you guys have stuck with me up until this point. And you're going to be rewarded someday. But tonight is going to be a different story. Your, their loyalty up until this point, tonight would not match that. And he turns to Peter, and he calls him Simon. Instead of the name he had given him, Peter, Jesus had given him the name Peter, which means the rock. And he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. What does he mean by that? Well, what's implicit here is explicit in Matthew 26, 31, where he tells them tonight all of you will desert me. You know, when something is, when, when wheat is sifted, you know, once wheat is harvested, you still can't eat it yet. You've got to take it. And what they would do is they would, they would drag a stone across it, or they would hit it with a, with a rod to, to bust it up to break the outer husk off of the inner grain. And then they would have to take it, and they would either toss it in the air to thresh it, or they would put it in this sieve, and they'd have to shake it back and forth and back and forth until the, the wheat fell through and the husk was separated from it. And so this is some sort of an analogy to what's going to happen to these guys tonight. Not a real pleasant experience. But it's a night after which these guys would never be the same. It would be permanently changed. And he turns to Simon, the leader of the apostles, and he says, I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. You're going to be the one that needs to take leadership after this night is all said and done. Well, Peter cannot believe what Jesus is saying. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison, to death. Look, who who are you talking to, Lord? This This is Peter, the rock, Mr. Stability. They don't call me the rock for nothing, okay? I'm in. Jesus says, Peter, I tell you, Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you'll deny three times that you even know me. Well, he swears, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples said the same thing too. Little did they know just how fickle they were. And then Jesus asked them, when I sent you out without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Remember when he sent them out on their first uh, uh, ministry journey back in Luke 9 and 10. And he said, Don't bring money, don't bring a bag, don't bring uh, extra sandals. He wanted them to learn to allow God to provide for them. And he says, Did you lack anything when I sent you out without that stuff? And they said, Nothing. That's actually a pretty good question for Christians to ask themselves. When you followed God, have you ever lacked anything? I got to say, for me, never. Never have I lacked anything when I've been following God. He said, but now times have changed. If you have a purse, take it. Also a bag. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It's kind of a strange teaching. What's this business about the sword? Well, it could be literal. It could be... You know, if you're walking down the road as a traveler and you got a sword on, it might be a little less likely for a robber to want to attack you. So it might be some sort of like a a self-defense thing. Um, This also could be metaphorical. This could be just telling them times are going to get tough. and You need to be ready for battle here. You need to be ready for hostility. Um, I don't know. It's weird. A couple verses later, the disciples are like, check it out. We got two swords. And Jesus says, "That's enough." <laughs> I mean, if he's talking about literal swords here, why would two swords be enough to take on the Roman Empire? In fact, it, when you read the Book of Acts, they're attacked with a sword repeatedly, openly hostile against the Christians, and they never retaliate with a the sword. They retaliate with non, they, they come back with nonviolence. The only time any Christian ever uses a sword in Scripture, he gets rebuked as we'll see later on tonight. But Jesus does say it's written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. You see the sense of destiny here. You see that there are things that have been written in the Old Testament, and now they are reaching their fulfillment. He says that twice here, written and fulfilled, and he's quoting Isaiah 53, and applying it to himself here on the final night of his life. An unbelievable prophecy from Isaiah, one of the servant songs, the last and greatest. Isaiah 53 says, Because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. Yes, Jesus is applying that to himself. He's saying, I am that righteous servant, and I'm going to allow many people to be counted as righteous, not guilty like like they deserve, but right in the eyes of God. Why? Because he, the righteous one, will bear all their sins. Yes, he was counted among the rebels. That's what Jesus is quoting here, numbered with the transgressors. Even though he was righteous, he was was deemed to be a rebel, a sinner for the sake of judgment. And at that point, he bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. He came in between the judgment that was due to us. He steps in front of us. And takes it himself, even though he doesn't deserve it. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That's the kind of leadership Jesus is going to provide. And that's what's written about him that must be fulfilled that very very day. Well, after that, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And Judas knew this is where Jesus often went with his disciples. This is where he's going to lead the mob. This is a hill east of Jerusalem. There's a garden there called the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means the olive press. It was the Garden of the Press. And on reaching that place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Temptation to what? Temptation to cowardice, to denying that they even know Jesus. Temptation to taking things into their own hands instead of waiting on the plan that Jesus has. He says, pray. Maybe if they'd prayed a little more and slept a little less on this night, they might have done better in the test that was going to follow. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, and he knelt down, and he prayed. And this is what he prayed. Three times, actually. Luke condenses it. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup, this cup of suffering from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So we see the humanity of Jesus as He prays under great distress out in the garden on the hill east of Jerusalem on the final night of His life. On the one hand, He's asking, is there any other way, Father? But at the same time, He's wrestling His will over and He's lining it up with the will of the Father. An angel, Luke tells us, from heaven appeared to Him and strengthened Him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And so an angel shows up and strengthens Jesus on this night. And what sort of strengthening does he give? Does he make the pain go away? No. What does he do? He gives him the strength to endure that anguish. He gives him the strength to keep on praying even more earnestly, Luke tells us. He was under such stress that the sweat was falling from him like drops of blood. Some, some Christians are like, well, under stress, the body can actually secrete blood instead of sweat. I guess maybe it can, but that's not what the Scripture says. It says that, you know, have you ever gotten a head wound? Even a small head wound, the blood just pours out of it. That's how Jesus' sweat was coming off of him on this night. It was just gushing out of him because of the pressure that he was under. You can just see that the reality of what's about to happen, grinding down on him, and he's praying ahead of time that he'll be able to endure. He's he's getting his perspective aligned with the Father so that he's ready to face what he's about to face. This is encouraging, too, for Christians. Remember this, that suffering is part of the Christian life. This is what Jesus went through, and no student is greater than his teacher, no servant greater than his master. And know that in the midst of suffering, God wants to give you the strength not to take the suffering away, but the strength to endure so you can continue to pray. And also there's the knowledge that the Father is with us. And now the Son is with us in all of our suffering. Well, when Jesus rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, also for the third time, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so you won't fall into temptation. The same command. But while Jesus was still speaking, a crowd came up. And the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. Okay, so this crowd, this was a mob... From the different gospel accounts we can discern, there were temple guards there, there were Roman guards there. John calls this a cohort of the Italian Italian regiment. A cohort with 600 soldiers. Now, I I don't know if, if he's using that term kind of loosely, but you get the sense there was a lot of firepower here with this mob. They knew Jesus was popular. They knew he was a miracle worker. They knew the situation there was unstable. And this huge crowd comes out into the forest of Gethsemane to search for and to find Jesus led by Judas. Judas had arranged the signal for how you can tell who is, who's the guy, who's Jesus. I'm going to go up and I'm going to kiss him. A kiss of greeting. I don't know why the kiss. It's possible the mob was hanging back so the Jews can show up and be like, oh, hey guys, how's it going? Give Jesus a little kiss. <laughs> like everything's just cool and then all of a sudden the The ambush shows up, and he's like, oh, I had no idea. I don't know. But Jesus is like, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? He knew the betrayal was coming. You get the sense Jesus is maybe a little bit surprised here, incredulous, by just how this is going down. The hypocrisy, there's nothing Jesus hates more than hypocrisy. Well, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? (laughs) The two swords that we have? (laughs) Well, Peter doesn't even wait for the answer. One of them, we learned it was Peter, shing, runs out, boom, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. Now's the time for Peter to prove his loyalty. Now's the time for the rock. <laughs> and here he surveys the entire cohort of soldiers, and then he sees the servant of the high priest. <laughs> and he says, That's my man. How do you know how you cut off a right ear with a sword without, like, I mean, was it like embedded in the guy's head? Was it like a stab? Regardless, he, he, he chops the guy's ear off. <laughs> and Jesus says, no, no more of this. And then he reaches out and does some sort of uh, Mr. Potato Head on the guy. <laughs> and boom, pops the ear right back on. Jesus was not happy with this. Peter was probably feeling pretty good about himself until Jesus heals the guy and realizes what a fool he's made of himself. You know, one problem here is this attack would give credibility to those charges of treason they were trying to press upon Jesus. Also, it's also going to make Peter more memorable to the mob, which is going to come back to haunt him later this night. And Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Accuses them of being cowards, but he says, come on. We see he says, why don't you let these guys go? Just take me. I'm the one you're here for. And seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. It appears at this point that all the other disciples scatter except for two. One is Peter, who followed at a distance. The other was almost certainly John. John tells us in John 18 that he followed along as well. In fact, when they went to the house of the high priest, it tells us that John, let's assume it was John, he actually was known to the high priest He was able to get inside the the courtyard. He also knew the girl who was watching the gate, and he talked her into letting Peter in as well. And so these two travel inside the city to the house and the courtyard of the high priest. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl, the same one that was watching the gate, the one that knew John, saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked at him closely. It's pretty dark out here. And she said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. Peter, here's your chance. Even if all deny him, you said you wouldn't. And here he's cowering before a lowly servant girl. Not a rich girl, Not a super strong girl. Not a girl who was a ninja. A lowly servant girl. And Peter denies. He disowns Jesus before the whole group. He leaves the fire. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. And this time... Matthew tells us with an oath, he says, I swear to God that I am not. So his denials are getting more forcible. About an hour later, another asserted, okay, certainly this fellow was with him. He's a Galilean. John 18, 26 tells us this third and final guy, he was actually a relative of the slave of the servant whose ear Peter had cut off. He's like, you're the guy that cut my cousin's ear off. <laughs> what are you doing here? He's a Galilean. What did he mean by that? Matthew tells us, he says, we can tell by your Galilean accent. Yeah, you see, the people from Galilee, that was like the kind of the hillbilly country. And so them ones from Galilee, they kind of talked like this. And it it says, at this point, he wasn't just swearing an oath. He began to curse and swear. He says, I do not know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. There's a lot of people in Galilee, okay? We're not all followers of Jesus. And as Peter was speaking, Luke tells us two things happened at that time. One is that a sound burst through the night. Just as he was speaking, he couldn't even finish his tirade. The rooster crowed, which meant dawn was approaching and it also meant that Jesus was exactly right. Three times before the next morning, he would deny Christ. The other thing we learn is that Peter, in his denunciation of Christ, had lost track of what was going on with the trial. And Jesus had been brought out of the interrogation room right at that point. And so not only did he predict the three denials of Christ, he got to see the third one with his own eyes. It says in verse 61, that, that moment the Lord turned and he looked straight at Peter. With that knowing look, a look of sadness and disappointment, Knewing that this was going to happen, but now having to see his own friend deny him. And at that moment, Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And then he went outside in the streets of Jerusalem and wept bitterly. And so what we see here is that everyone failed Jesus on this final night of his life. His disciples arguing about who's the greatest. Judas sitting there at the Last Supper with the coins jingling in his pocket, saying, surely not I, Lord. Even when they went out to pray, they couldn't even stay up and pray with him. They were too interested in sleep to pray with Jesus on the night of his death. And yet, in spite of all this failure, you know, they all scattered when the guards showed up. And yet, in spite of all this failure, Luke draws special attention to two men in Jesus' inner circle, Judas and Peter. Judas and Peter. You know, we look, in hindsight, we can see that these two men ended up taking very different paths, and we, we tend to read what came after back into this night. But the reality is, sitting here... In the courtyard, as Peter ran off into the darkness, Judas and Peter really weren't looking that much different. Let's think about it. You know, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. How despicable. And yet Peter denied Jesus with oaths and swearing. Cursing, even. Judas was premeditated. You know, he did this in advance, although it wasn't that premeditated. It looked like it was maybe only a few days in advance that he made this this move to betray Christ. Peter, on the other hand, Jesus predicted he would do it. He refuted that and then he still did it three times. Three times. Judas was totally self-protective. He's just looking out for himself. But Peter was also being self-protective, also looking out for himself. Judas betrayed Christ at his darkest hour and yet Peter... The same could be said about him. This was Jesus' darkest hour when he betrayed him. You know, one thing about Peter, at least you could say he was sorry, weeping in the streets of Jerusalem. But if we read the rest of the story, we see that he wasn't the only sorry one here. In fact, you could argue that Judas was more sorry. Look what Matthew tells us. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse or deep, deep regret. He felt so terrible about what he had done and what had happened. He felt so terrible, he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders. And he said, I've sinned, I've betrayed an innocent man. And they're like, what do we care? That's your problem. What do you think? We have some kind of a refund policy here? Save your receipt and get Jesus back? You got your money. Get out of here. And so Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple, and he went away, and he hanged himself. He took his life. So you could say that Judas was pretty sorry, too, if you read the rest of the story. What he he did in his sorrow was way more intense than what Peter did in his. Judas ended up in hell. He's one of the only people we know. Jesus said he's destined for destruction. Peter, on the other hand, went on to lead the early church. Just a few weeks later, he's leading thousands to Christ at Pentecost. He's testifying in a bold way before the the, the same Sanhedrin. He's not cowering before the servant girls. He's standing his ground just like Jesus did providing spectacular, brilliant leadership and preaching in the early church. Toughness. Went on to write two books of scripture. And so you look at these guys and you wonder, what, what's the difference here? And what, what I'm putting forward is the difference between Ju- Judas and Peter lies not in the nature of their failure. It's in their response to that failure. Their response to it. That's what separated Judas from Peter. And their response can really be summed up in this passage in 2 Corinthians 7.10 where Paul is talking about how the Corinthians responded to some failure, this church at Corinth. And he says, you know, godly sorrow brings repentance. It leads to salvation. and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. And it's really the difference between mere regret or remorse like Judas had and repentance, which is what Peter had. And we need to talk about the difference between these two. In fact, you could go ahead and just write regret above Judas' name and repentance above Peter's name because that's how each responded to their failure on this night. And this is important because those of us here in this room, we're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail sometimes in major ways. And what you need to know is how to respond to that failure. So let's take a look at the difference between regret and repentance. You know, regret is accompanied by sorrow. We certainly saw that in Judas's life. Repentance, though, can also be accompanied by sorrow. It often is. Not necessarily, but often is. Regret, though, is merely a change of feeling. All there is is the bad feelings in regret. With repentance, though, it comes with a change of perspective, A change of mind is sometimes how that word will be translated. That's what the root words mean that make this word up. It's a change of feeling versus a change of mind, a change of perspective. You know, when you've messed up, this this is what you need to do. You need to change your perspective. You need to change your mind about the direction that you are heading, especially if you find yourself heading in the wrong direction. A few years ago, some friends of mine were driving to the beach, Okay, which is on the East Coast. And they got in the car, they left at like midnight, and one of the guys that knew what he was doing, he decided to go ahead and sleep for a shift and let another one of the new guys drive. Well, he wakes up a couple hours later and he sees a sign that says, Welcome to Indiana, <laughs> which is not on the way to the East Coast from Ohio. Well, you know, if you're the driver in that car, you realize I've just made a huge mistake. And what's the best response to that situation? Do you look at the sign and you go, oh no, Indiana, I'm such a failure as a driver. I always do this, I'm always messing things up. Oh, they should never have let me drive in the first place. It's just, oh, Illinois, 50 miles, oh no. (laughs) See, I'm doing it again. (laughs) No, what you need to do is as soon as you realize you're heading in the wrong direction, you get off at the next exit, and you turn around, and you start heading back the other way. That's really a pretty good policy. If you, if you realize you're heading in the wrong direction spiritually, or in a particular area, the best thing you could do, it doesn't do any good to sit around beating yourself up about it. Yeah, there might be some bad feelings about the, the damage that's been done, but what you got to do is you got to get off, and you got to turn around and head back the other direction. That's why it's called a change of mind, a change of perspective. Regret is a proud sorrow. It wallows in self-pity. It refuses healing. I'm just too messed up is how it feels. Repentance, on the other hand, accepts God's forgiveness and leaves no regret, according to 2 Corinthians 7.10. Yes, on the other side of it, you can actually have joy. And not be kicking yourself in regret for the rest of your life. Regret disagrees with God. It says, you know, what? I couldn't help it. It makes excuses. It's their fault. It tries to shift blame to someone else. It says, I guess I'm just hopeless. All three of which are false. Repentance, on the other hand, is able to agree with God. It says, I'm to blame. Yeah, I mean, I guess other people may have contributed, but it really doesn't matter what they did. What I need to be focused on is my part in this. My part in this conflict, my part in this sin that I committed, this pattern of sin that I'm in. It also says, with God's power, I can change. It's not that I'm so messed up that even though God sent his son to die for me, even though now... As a Christian, I have God's power in my life, his spirit in my life, the power of the word through which God called the universe into existence. You know, Regret just says, in spite of all those things, I'll never change and I'm hopeless. Maybe some of you here in this room are feeling like that. I'll never change. I'm hopeless. I've done this thing again. Well, Repentance says, I can change with God's power. Repentance says, there is hope. I had a part to play in this, and I want to admit that, I want to confess that, and I want to move on. Regret continues to hide in shame. Yeah, people who have fallen into sin, they're all about, and they're, they're still stuck in regret, they're about information control. They're trying to hide. They still can't quite come out and confess what really happened. You know that Sometimes people, they'll just confess part of it, without really confessing the whole thing to try to get something off their conscience. Repentance, though, is so open. It's so relieved. It's joyful. There's a freedom that comes from repentance where I don't have to hide what I did, but where my story can actually become one that I tell to other people. And I can warn them not to to do what I did, where I actually have deeper insight into that particular sin so that I can help other people who are caught in that same sin. Regret drives us away from God, whereas repentance draws us even closer to God. Yeah, you can actually, this is surprising, you can come out on the other side of a major sin, actually closer to God, more in touch with His grace, and in some cases completely free of that sin that you've been shackled to. Regret is essentially self-focused. It's focused on me and how I'm affected by this and how I was wronged, and what I'm experiencing as a result of this. Whereas repentance sees both the horizontal aspects, how I affected other people, and the vertical aspects. You'll see people sometime, you know, like uh, maybe a guy uh, comes out with sexual sin, right? He's been sleeping with his girlfriend, he's been hiding it, he's been lying to everybody, and he gets busted out, and he's just like, oh, I'm just, I feel so bad about this, and I just, feel bad about, you know, maybe I harmed her in some way and used her and stuff like that. But there's no real understanding of how he's affected everybody else by showing up as a massive hypocrite and injecting hypocrisy into every gathering of the body of Christ where he was present. There's also no thought into how this is a sin against God. You know, David, King David was this guy in the Old Testament who committed this heinous sin. It involved adultery. It involved homicide. Uh, It was bad, okay? But when he's confronted finally and he repents, what does he say? God, I've sinned against you alone. He realized that his sin was first and foremost a sin against God. The person who is repentant sees their sin Much more clearly. In fact, uh, repentance might involve some study. It might involve looking up some scriptures on anger to deal with this anger problem. Not just trying to will myself forward, but trying to understand this. Regret. People who are stuck in regret, they're upset about consequences. You know, they might be saying, I'm just so sorry and crying. Or they might just be like, man, I just feel so grateful to God for His grace, and then you'll be like, well, okay, that's cool. I'm really glad God's showing you these things. But there are going to be some, some consequences here to what you've done. And instantly the tears stop, the elation drops, and they're angry that there'd be any consequences about what's happened here. Whereas the person who's repentant is zealous to make things right, and they accept any consequences. They're just so thankful for God's forgiveness, and they have, they have joy And they're willing to accept consequences for what's happened. And they even see some of these are, they they might even see these are going to be for my good to help me resist this in the future. The person in regret, like Judas, may feel sorry forever. I've talked to people who have said, This thing I did 40 years ago, every day since then I've woken up, and that's the first thing I think about in the morning that thing that I did. God came to set you free from that sort of thing. Set you free from guilt and shame. On the other hand, if we're repentant like Peter, we might realize that failure was the best thing that ever happened to me. There's things in my life like that. Things where at the time, it was such a horrible, embarrassing, public thing. And then in hindsight, I just think I'm so glad that God let me go through that. I'm so glad God showed me my sin that he allowed these consequences in, that he allowed this failure because I've never been the same since. Ultimately, worldly sorrow brings death. It leads to death. And for the non-Christian, if you've never put your trust in Christ and received this forgiveness, that's a literal eternal death. It's only by putting your trust in Christ that you come into eternal life. But for the Christian... This can be kind of like, in the more the symbolic sense of the word, basically becomes death for your spiritual life, where you walk around in a state of shame and failure, thinking about how screwed up you are, thinking about the ways you've messed up in the past, thinking about how hopeless you are, thinking about how you'll never change, bitter at other people for how I've been treated, and for how I've been wronged, and they're the reason why I'm in this, this situation. And it just leads to this spiral. And I've got to tell you, I've, I've lost friends to this death spiral right here. Stewing in their own regret, stewing, just feeling bad for themselves, getting bitter, and they end up walking away from God. And I don't want anybody here in this room to fall prey to that. It's never too late to repent. It's never too late to get off the highway and start heading back in the opposite direction. That's what you need to do. In that particular area of your life that God might be bringing up. On the other hand, repentance leads to salvation and leaves no regret. It leads to life and it leads to victory. So let's draw some conclusions. We've, what we've seen here is the final night of Jesus' life. We've taken him right up to the point where he's standing trial before the high priest and we'll look at that next week. We've seen All the people he'd been training for three years melted away when adversity hit. And yet the picture that we see after this, in the weeks to follow, is of a very different band of disciples and a very different Peter, who actually were strengthened through this time of failure, who actually became powerful, whose lives looked totally different than they did in the three years leading up to this. This was truly the turning point in their lives. What we've seen is that everyone makes mistakes. Everybody does. You're going to make so many mistakes. You're going to mess up so badly so many times in your, in your spiritual life. And you've got two options. You can live the rest of your life in regret, or you can repent and experience the cleansing of the blood of Christ and live that life of, of victory like we see, play it out in Peter's life. All right, well, next week we've we got the cross. The most significant event in the history of the human race, right there. The turning point of everything. So you can read over Luke 23 for next week in preparation for that momentous study. Yes, Lord, I am just so thankful that you we the God of second chances and third chances, and there's always another chance with you, Lord. As long as we're alive here, as long as we can still hear your voice, we can always turn back to you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the many times in my life that you brought me back from the edge. Um, thanks for how you're so gentle and loving toward us. Thank you, too, that Jesus bore our sins and was numbered among the, the, the rebels so that we could be counted righteous, and I pray for anybody here who uh, has never made that decision to come into a relationship with you through your Son. I pray that they would do that, that they would receive that forgiveness tonight, and that they would they would experience the joy that comes from your cleansing, God. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.